I grew up in Canada, in a small city in northwestern Ontario in the 1970s and 80s. Friends of my parents lived about 30 miles outside of the city, Thunder Bay, and those friends had a farm. Murray and Rose were their names, and to me that farm has always been Rose's farm. My mother still tells a story of when my sister was little and they were driving out to visit the farm. My sister pointed out the other cars on the highway and said, I guess they're all going to their Rose's farms too. That comment makes a lot of sense. Everyone should have a Rose's farm to visit. It was on Rose's farm that I sifted through hay for the first time to find eggs and bring them into the kitchen gingerly to clean them up and take them home. It was at Rose's farm that I first tasted milk fresh from a cow. And it was at Rose's farm that I turned pale one day as it dawned on me that the bacon I was eating came from somewhere very close. That was a good lesson to learn, and I've been thinking a lot about Rose's Farm since doing the interview that you're going to hear on today's episode. And I realized it had been far too long since I'd spoken to Rose. Oh yes, Rose is still here. Murray is no longer with us, but Rose sure is. And she still lives, alone now, on Rose's Farm. She lives in a farmhouse, she heats with wood, and brews the strongest tea I've ever tasted and she's less than a handful of years from 100. True to form, Rose picked up the phone right away and spoke to me lovingly and briskly. It could have been 40 years ago. It really was a joy to hear her voice, but I know that Rose won't be here forever. And I think that's one reason I found today's interview so compelling, because I learned that there are other people like Rose. There are people who care about animals and land and doing things right. And we need those people for our collective future. So, I'm really glad you've joined me here today, and I think you will be too, because today, I'm taking you to Raquel's farm. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. It is Friday again, and here we are back on the Chef Demoni podcast. Thank you for joining me. We are going to have some great discussions today. If you're new to the show, Chef Demoni is the way that I stay connected to the culinary world now that I no longer work in that world professionally. On the career front, I have worked mostly in kitchens and in law offices. The result is that I know a lot of chefs and a whole lot of lawyers. On Chef Demoni, I talk to people who love food. And often those people are chefs or they are food-loving lawyers. But sometimes, like today, we have an amazing guest who is a little outside the mold. And today, I will be speaking with an incredible farmer. Oh, and we also do have a lawyer, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Today's guest is Raquel Koloff, and she is a neighbor not too far away at all here in Gibsons on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. I visited Raquel on a beautiful spring day this week, and we walked around her farm. It's called Huff Heritage Farm. And then we sat on the farmhouse deck for a great chat. It was COVID-compliant in the best possible way, outdoors on a sunny day in a beautiful setting. I will take you first to our walk around the farm so that you can meet some of the wonderful characters. There are Bella and Bobo, gorgeous Berkshire pigs, plus some very noisy turkeys, and there are sheep and cattle and chickens. There's even a little pig flirtation and romance going on. Okay, let's just go walk on the farm for a few minutes, shall we? 
It was a windy afternoon, so bear with us as you hear the wind blowing over the microphone from time to time. All right, to the farm. Now, is this, this must be Bobo, although there are... Okay, let me show you Bobo. Pigs. I know. Wow. So, Bobo's right here. This is the big boy. Okay. Bobo. Whoa, whoa, okay. And Sorry, which is Bobo? Against... This guy right here. Oh, right there. Okay. Yeah. Behind the and turkey? We'll get the... uh, yeah, behind the turkey. You can see his tusks. That's how you know okay. he's a boar. Whoa, who is this standing up? Now, this is My good old Bella. And Bella. Bella and Bobo were the very first pigs I brought over here seven years ago when I got the farm. Yes. And they were about the size of my Shih Tzu. Right. And I brought them in the back of my car. <laughs> and um, Bobo came up and jumped in the front seat with me on the ride home. Oh. And um, so they're, they're pets, really. Okay. But they provide food, which is great. And I've always said that my farm animals are pets until they become food. And I'm right. very proud of that. Of, of being able to provide food, but yes. I do treat them like I would my dog. They get vets. They get seen by vets if they need to. They get the best food possible. Their play is important. Their social life is important. Yeah. So for me, it's about their quality of life is the best I can provide until they become food, and all of that <laughs> I'm very much at peace with. Yes. Yeah. So that's How? Bobo. How big is he's a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds! Oh my goodness! But he walks on his ankles. He's got very delicate cankles. Okay. Yeah. Aww. You see how he walks? Yes. Yeah. He's eight it's, years old, which yeah. is very old for a pig. Okay. And he's he um, the chickens like hanging out with him, which is why you see there's decorations on the back. I see. Yes. Okay. Hey, Bobo. Well, I have to say, I. I assumed from, because of course I follow your Instagram account, yeah. I, I was expecting him to be about a third of that size. Yes. He's, he's like a, he's like a this horse. Is this is, he is, he is. He's, he is a horse but on short legs yeah. that walks on his ankles. This is a grown sow. This is Bella. She's eight years old. Yeah. She doesn't have piglets anymore. She's a senior. He's a senior really. And they just get to live their lives out. But this is a grown sow yes. and pigs become achieve their adult weight at five years okay we process them though at six seven months so uh, no so, right, the, so you just don't see you them never right. see them and this is sassy pants my other boot yeah. built <laughs> right sassy they've been in the mud all day so they're oh, a little yeah. dusty hello you ladies have leather shoes they're oh, yeah. very interested in oh yeah shoes. she's giving the giving the boots a little kiss yeah. hi okay. Alice. Getting decorated. yeah well, they are just magnificent. So, what you're seeing here, mm -hmm. you see he's peeing yeah. in front of Bella. Oh, okay. So, he's flirting with her okay. and she's saying, I'm not in the mood. Uh -huh. And so, what boars do is they rub, they take their snout and they rub the sow's belly mm -hmm. to and, and kind of bounce it up and down to sort of get them in the mood. And then she'll decide whether she stands for him or not. You see how big they are. If she doesn't sure do. stand solid, he can't mount. Okay. So it's fascinating that they really do get to choose when they're in this situation. I mean, yeah. in a factory farm, they have no choices whatsoever because right. they're locked up. Yeah. But here, they really do get to choose when it's the time is right. And ever heard of boar hair bristles? Yes. Well, this is where they got them from. Right. So they're, the turkeys are just mating. Okay. <laughs> they're really showing off. But this is where you get boar hair bristles from. Right. And, um, oh, Bobo. Yeah, he says, I like scratching. 
Oh, that feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> Amazing. He's so great. You're a couple feet away from a thousand pound Pounds boar. Pounds of pig, yes. Yeah. And, they're, wow. and you can see they're not ferocious or vicious. No. My goodness. <laughs> and he's around chickens and turkeys yeah. because he's fed well. He's fed up. He's going to rub you. Um, he's fed appropriately. So yeah. he, you know, a lot of pig owners who, who just feed vegetable scraps or um, low protein diets, primarily mm -hmm. vegetables, or they just pasture them. They couldn't keep them around poultry because they're starving for oh, protein, right? right. Yeah. But I don't have that issue. This is one of the litters that are getting processed this week. This okay. is from Zoe Pig, who is a purebred large black, and Bobo was the dad. So these are large black Berkshire mixes. Yeah. And that's probably the last litter Bobo will ever have. Right. I don't know if he'll he'll be up for it. He's a senior now. He's so. a senior pig. Oh. Yeah. But what's neat is when they give birth, you see there's two pig barns. Yes. So they get to choose where they sleep. Okay. And I'll always know when someone gave birth during the night because all the pigs will have cleared out of one barn. Okay. And they will leave the mama and her piglets alone. And everyone's stuffed into the other barn to give her space. It's beautiful. Yeah. This is Norman. Hello, Norman. Hi, buddy. Come so this is this half of the forest belongs to the pigs. Okay. So they kind of spend their days just going, they're really forest animals, right? So they spend their day going off into the forest and doing their thing. And then they come and sleep and then yeah. they go back. Oh, Bobo's going down. He's going down oh. for a nap. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Now, the, the ducks, how, how do you or do you? Yeah, uh, prevent them from leaving. Or I, they, they just do. There, the there are hundreds of wild ducks. They're not oh. mine. Okay, these um, guys. Yeah. I. That's another reason why I had to sort of close in the coop okay. is because they would just march in single file and eat all and of eat my everything. chicken feed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So all of these hundreds of wild ducks came because I put the ponds in. You know, they all need a place to go, and uh, we have lots of ravens on the farm that yeah. help themselves to eggs, and we have coyotes that show up every morning and. Yeah, there's there's a lot of wildlife here. It's it's fascinating. Canadian geese, we get snow geese, we get sandpipers in the summer, mm -hmm. um, and everyone's welcome. And now, please join me on the deck of Raquel's farmhouse for our talk. You'll hear Raquel saying hi, Jesse, at one point to her dog, and you'll also hear me start to laugh because baby goats were leaping around and they were just impossibly cute. And then, of course, the alpaca came galloping by. So many parts of today's talk stand out to me. We have a discussion on the high, in air quotes, price of real food and on what Raquel sees as really necessary work on the wage front, which would enable people to purchase ethically produced food. We also talk about processing, which is another word for killing. It is the killing of animals, the taking of life. It is a plain fact of consuming meat, and I think it's an important topic for discussion. You are also going to hear how these farm animals have taught Raquel to live in the moment, and you will hear Raquel's thoughts on ecosystems, how there are no vegan ecosystems, but there is interplay between plants and animals that is so important. Oh, and that lawyer that I mentioned. Today, you're going to hear the first ever iteration of a brand new segment on Cheftimony. It's called Sidebar, and it's a collaboration with my friend Tanya Tomaszewska. 
If you have been listening to Chef Demoni for a while, you will remember Tanya from episode 35, Wine and Wi-Fi. Tanya is the former banking lawyer turned wine explorer, and she is going to join me later on today's episode for our first ever sidebar. Basically, Tanya and I are going to use Sidebar to talk about wine and food and what might go with what's being discussed on any particular episode. I hope you'll like the new segment. Let me know. All right, it's time to get to the interview. Join me in Gibson's, British Columbia, at Huff Heritage Farm. Here's my talk with Raquel Koloff. Well, Raquel, thank you for having me here to Huff Heritage Farm. It is a absolutely gorgeous, very early spring afternoon here on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. Thank you for being on Cheftimony. Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely honored and thrilled. It's such a pleasure to be able to be here and talk about farming and food, especially, you know, on the Sunshine Coast where there's not a lot of it uh, farming happening. So it's great to be able to highlight some of it. I'd like to start with a quote, and this is from one of your recent Instagram posts, and it was a quote from Dr. Mark Hyman, and it said, The overflowing shelves in the supermarket may trick you into thinking food just appears. The reality is that strong, healthy soils are the foundation for food production, and without them, we can't survive. So that's the quote, and you and I just had a great tromp around through some of the soil here on the farm, but can I get your comments on that on that quote? Why is soil so important? Why, why is soil the foundation? I think that's such a great question to start with. I've been thinking a lot about this and there's a, a black and white thinking around plants versus animals and that, that's a false dichotomy. Really, it's not about being plant-based or animal-based, it's about being soil-based. Soil is the foundation of every living thing, the soil and the water cycle, is the foundation of everything we eat. It's what provides the nutrient density to our food. Without it, we have just a very, a shell of, of food happening, a shell of what we could possibly grow. It's so interesting to me when I got into farming and the mentors I would look up to, one of them is White Oak Pastures. And uh, there's a really great farmer over there. And he says, when he first started, he'd be about how many pounds of beef can I get off my land? How many head of cattle can I have on my hand and now uh, on my land? And now he's interested in how much biodiversity he can sustain. And what they've shown is that when your soil is functioning, when your soil is healthy, you get more pounds of food off the land. And I think What's What I've noticed is you need both animals and plants to do that. And a lot of people that, are, that go into a plant-based lifestyle don't see behind the scenes how many animal products are used to grow plants. When we think of bone meal or blood meal or feather meal, that's all uh, amendments used in soil to grow plants, and that comes from animal products. So... Yeah, I think soil is absolutely the foundation, but primarily we need healthy soil to sequester carbon. That's the first thing. It's got to be, it's a carbon sink, and the only way to have healthy soil is to have healthy animal and plant inputs. So for me, I'm sort of changing my focus on this farm. I raise animals for meat, yes, but I see that as a byproduct of me trying to revitalize the soil. 
and I I know next door where they haven't had animals for over two decades. The soil is dry and lifeless. And it's not like it's had heavy industry. It's not like it's had tons of people racing all over it. It's not like it's had toxic chemicals dumped on it, but it's been without animal inputs. It's been out without hooves. It's been without cow poop, all those things that bring life back to the soil. And now I look at my soil and there will be just absolutely, you know, waist high grass in, in a matter of a month. And that's because of the diversity here. It's funny, when I first started, I got a lot of questions about why do you have so many different animals? And now I don't get those questions anymore. People used to think of farming as monoculture, that if you had a farm, you just had cattle, or you had dairy cows, or you just had chickens, or you just grew corn. We lost the diversity, understanding that diversity is needed to have a healthy farm, but it's also needed to have healthy soil. Do you have to take or do you take specific steps to rotate the... Mm-hmm. I, I remember um, reading in Omnivore's Dilemma, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, I think it was Joel Salatin who talked about move, uh, portable chicken coop is what I remember. And the, and the chickens went over here and presumably scratched and pooped and did whatever they did, dug out the worms, and then there would be... Uh, some other animal would come in. So how how does that work? So that's so important, even on a small scale. You can see my middle pasture. This is sort of my sacrificial pasture. This is the the pathway that they use, and you can see all the baby goats coming in. This is a pathway that all the animals use to get to the barn. But beyond this, they have five acres of pasture that has been subdivided into about three separate pastures right now, and I block off the their access so a lot of people that have been here notice how many gates we have we have a lot of gates and that's necessary because i pick and choose where they access on every different week so it's called flash grazing mob grazing rotational grazing holistic pasture management there's a lot of different terms for it but the key is you have to move animals and they can't stay on it for too long otherwise they've overstayed their welcome and they can destroy the soil so one of the the keys is to to like you'll see in Africa or any wilderness or or um, any of the sort of 40% of the globe that's all grasslands, you will have herds move through and then you'll have the birds come. They are unbelievable at like getting rid of that cow pie, taking out all of the larvae that are in there that the flies uh, deposited their eggs, and then they move on as well. So I try to do that. I mean, my birds are free range so I can't do it as much as possible but what I hope to do next door is do the chicken tractors that you were talking about that's one of my goals yeah but I definitely rotate my ruminants there there are a number of of terms and of course the food industry is rife with terms maybe the best example I can think of is eggs they're free range Mm -hmm. they're free free run they're cage free they're greenery access there's some but a term that's relatively new to me but i know it's one that you know well and i'd ask you to speak to it because i i think this is a term for what you're describing and it's regenerative farming so what what is that it i think it is at least in part what we've just heard you describe but what is regenerative farming and is that now a is there a 
a society, an organization, is it like organic or USDA organic or somebody else's organic? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and I love that you brought up also organic and organic's really important to me, but organic doesn't speak to ethical or humane husbandry of animals. So you can have organic eggs, organic chicken, or organic beef, but it's still raised in a factory indoors. Organic just speaks to what it's eating. And that's really important, but it's only one part of the puzzle. So regenerative agriculture has at least six different, actually, it's pretty much six different tenets to it. And one of them is you don't disturb the soil. Tilling is a no-go. Think of the soil as a living, living, breathing entity. It's like the skin on our bodies and you want to keep it intact. You don't want to disturb it. You want to have a living root in the ground for as long as possible. So that means you don't have annuals. You, you don't have annuals like soy, corn, uh, wheat. You go to perennial agriculture like grasslands. 40% of the earth is doesn't have enough rainfall to to support a forest but what it does have is enough rainfall to support grasslands and grasslands are as good as sequestering carbon and building soil as forests so that's why regenerative agriculture is really trying to get people back into pastures rather than all these monoculture annual crops like soy and corn which require a lot of inputs to grow uh, so living root in the soil for as long as possible. Don't disturb the soil. Diversity, diversity, diversity. Stay away from monocrops. You want as much diversity and things blooming at different times as possible. Hi, Jesse. You want as much diversity to bring back the diversity to the soil. And then part of regenerative agriculture, which is what I'm so passionate about and why I love it so much, is that you, it really honors the animal as part of healing the soil and making sure the microbiome is healthy. You need animals as part of that. They tend to focus on ruminants, livestock, having that optimal distur- disturbance on the, on the grasses. What's fascinating is, and what I see next door, is that a lot of people think, oh, just leave the grasslands alone. They'll be fine. But they actually need to be grazed to be healthy. If grass grows and is not grazed, it'll just die and fall over and then kill the grass below it. So really, truly, and I've said this before, there are no vegan ecosystems. Animals and plants work together to make the most healthy environment out there. So that's part of regenerative regenerative agriculture. There is a new certification. I know the baby goats are playing on goat mountain. Baby goats are just leaping around. It is so adorable. They're like monkeys. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, there. This is this is the time where everyone comes in from the pasture. Oh, here comes Barney the alpaca. Oh yeah! Wow. He, see, have, he's got to be with his sheep and goats. I have never seen an alpaca. It, now I'm going to say gallop. Is that the right? That term? is galloping. He, he is. Sure is. Yeah, he's a wow. pretty neat guy. Wow. Yeah, everyone's coming in. This is a good time. Yes. And there's an Icelandic sheep. Yeah. So regenerative organic, uh, regenerative agriculture is a movement. There is no certifying body for it, but there is a new certifying body called regenerative organic. So regenerative organic is taking all the best parts of regenerative agriculture, the organic certification standards, plus, which I think is also equally important, is workers' rights. 
and this is another set of farming that not a lot of people talk about is the industrial agriculture system is really heavily um, supported by very low paid workers who do not have the best working conditions there's a lot of things wrong with the factory system and and uh, yes it it provides the majority of our food but I think if we little by little switch over to a regenerative organic standard we'll probably get even more food because it'll be able to support more diverse foods and and more volume but we'll have better a better planet we'll have better working environment all of that do you and I'm going to leap ahead and guess that you must get this question and have frustration at it because I hear this question a lot I have frustration and in part, I sympathize with the question. I'll, I'll get to the question. The question is, why is pasture-raised, why is regeneratively, organically produced food so expensive? Yeah. And I should need to qualify. I am able to make purchasing decisions that I'm happy about, and I'm privileged and, and grateful to be able to do that. At the same time, food produced well comes with a certain cost. And if it doesn't come with a financial cost, I remember interviewing Anna Pippas, who, who is vegan, and we were talking about the, the $10 chicken, roast chickens that you find in grocery stores. And she made the very good point that somebody is paying the cost mm-hmm. of that $10 chicken. It should not cost $10. So the somebody's paying that cost are probably the chicken raised in horrible environments and probably the workers being underpaid to uh, produce that chicken, process that chicken, deliver that chicken. That's a long rambling statement, but can you please comment on that? And do, do you hear that question? Do you share that frustration? And, and yeah. what is your answer to it? Yeah, I, I've, I've said all along that if you're paying $4 a pound for pork, someone somewhere is being exploited. And uh, chances are it's the animal, the worker, and the environment. We are fooled into thinking food is cheap because we are buying food from a heavily subsidized system. The costs are downloaded elsewhere. If you go back before World World War II changed our food system for the worse. After World War II, they had all these factories. They weren't making tanks. What are they going to make? Okay, let's make tractors. We had all these war chemicals, Bayer which is, you know, uh, bought out Monsanto. They made chemicals for wartime and they just turned those factories into making chemicals for food production. These chemicals are, are as toxic as any war chemical. This whole system is heavily subsidized and, and artificially sort of supported and has fooled us into thinking food is cheap and it's not. I raise pigs here that are uh, fed appropriately They are free-range on half of my property, about five acres. I sell my pork for $10 a pound. I know how much went into that pork. It's about $9 something for the food, for the hay, for the straw, and a little bit towards vet costs. That does not include farm insurance, the cost of infrastructure. That does not include my time. That does not include the eggs they get or the cost of putting in the water and the water lines or the energy for the heat lamps in the winter. I mean, there is no money, uh, no profit to be made in raising animals well. And that's because we have lost track of the real cost of food. And I've said this a lot, avoid the high cost of cheap food. Around World War II, 
or after World War II, people would spend, there was a study, people would spend twice as much on food as they did on medicine. And now it's the reverse. We spend twice as much on medicine as we do on food. And it's at our peril. This is not, we're not supposed to be sick all the time. We're not supposed to have autoimmune diseases and inflammatory diseases like, like we do. And we've been sold a really false bill of goods. We were told that margarine is better than butter. It's not. We were told that artificial sweeteners are better than sugar. They're not. Um, white bread, we were told, is better. It's not. And, and I feel the same way about the fake meat movement that's happening. This is highly processed artificial foods based on monoculture. They're, you know, sprayed with glyphosate and, and kill off everything in its wake. And it's not healthy food. It's just not going to get us where we need to go. Unfortunately, I need to charge what I charge. And I'm very aware that only a certain percentage of, of the population can afford my uh, ethical and humane meat. And I've always said, along with me being a absolute advocate for farmers charging the real cost of food, we also need to chart to uh, advocate for increased wages. We need to have people earning a living wage so they can afford good food. And I think those go hand in hand. Uh, unfortunately, I can't lower my prices, um, but I, I want us to advocate as much as possible for an increase in, in the minimum wage so people can afford good food. Tell us, Raquel, how long you've been here at Hoff. I think I think I know because I think you said as we were walking around the farm property se- seven years, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, and that you grew up in Vancouver. How, how did you come to be in, how did you be? How come to be a farmer? Yeah, that's that's it, it's an interesting story, and it's one that's kind of similar to the biggest little farm. I was born and raised in Vancouver, and since I was a very young child, I remember having and feeling having an affinity with and feeling an incredible bond with animals. And my whole life, I've had every different type of pet. And I would go to Queen Elizabeth Park when I was a little girl, and we would you know fish out tadpoles, and I'd make a pond in my backyard and put tab holes in it and I had rabbits and guinea pigs and you name it and the reason I moved here one of the main reasons is I had a a beautiful my first dog I don't have kids so my dogs are like my kids and my very first dog was a beautiful multi-poo named Ketsy and he got uh, sick really quick he got liver cancer at the age of eight and he went down real fast And I'd always said to him that, you know, one day you're going to have a big yard that I can throw your chucket because he loved chuckets. I can throw your chucket and it won't hit a fence. That was my promise to him. And then he went really quick. And I said, well, life is short. What am I waiting for? And uh, that year, it's not just Ketsy. That year I had, there was quite a few deaths in the family and all around. And I was just really left with this feeling of life is short. What are you waiting for? And I needed a a tremendous change in my life. And my boss at work said, I was looking at farm properties in Langley because, you know, I still work in Vancouver and the prices were going up every month by a hundred grand. And I was priced out real quick. And my boss said, have you checked out the Sunshine Coast? And I'm like, holy cow, no. So I came here one weekend this was one of five properties I saw. I knew instantly, instantly. It had the pond, which was in critical for me. It was on a, a, a beautiful uh, street, great neighbors. 
Uh, I made an offer. The deal was done by Monday. It was that weekend. It was done. <laughs> Love it. But I was lucky because this was seven years ago when regular people could still afford to buy here. It's not the case anymore. I, I, my timing was good, and I'm quite fortunate that I jumped in when I did. And it really was a, a tremendous feeling of life is short. What are you waiting for? That was it. That brought you here. And yeah. what a gorgeous place. I can't imagine you've ever regretted being here. No, this is, this is an, uh, honestly, and it's, this is, I think, why I'm so drawn to farm animals and animals in general. The, they have taught me how to live in the moment. Uh, humans can get quite stuck in the past with depression or in the future with anxiety, right? And, and we've lost track of how to just enjoy the moment. And for me, that was a real struggle. And farm animals, more so than dogs and cats, farm animals, animals have been an incredible teacher into how to live in the moment and to not sweat the small stuff and you know they're just pure joy really you know just them coming in from the pastures just makes you giggle right well, that's right it did i was laughing out loud well and seeing bobo the thousand pound pig uh scratching himself against the post he's just you know in bliss it, it's a real honor it's an honor to be able to have a relationship with them and to be um so close to them and it's not all rosy i mean there are you know like winter when the water's frozen it's you have to take water on buckets uh, but there are hard moments but i've never even in the hardest moment i've never felt like giving up because it's real and you feel alive and I've never felt as alive as I am when, especially when they're giving birth. That is one of the most beautiful moments to be a part of. And this, this lambing season was really special because I had some really nice tenants and my neighbor's daughter came by. They were very eager to watch a birth, right? A lot of people don't see farm births. And so they said, text us, text us when it's happening. We'll come out and, and the neighbors will come out with their kids. And sure enough, it lined up where there was one and I was happened to be around to see it. And they all came out. And we were just sitting around talking quietly, watching this goat give birth. And it was one of the most beautiful moments. Of course. Literally yeah. a miracle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's, you know, it is a miracle and we lose track of that. Well, We've got to get to the um, the food related portion of the podcast, of course. And it's so uh, I'm so grateful to talk to you because I think so many people, chefs less so than others, but we we just lose touch with where food actually comes from. So let's pick a few things. So I, I can speak to the Berkshire pork that I have had. Which is, why don't we start there? Why and how is it so delicious? This takes me back to one of my early staging days. It was at Fuel Restaurant in Kitsilano back in the day. And I asked one of the cooks there, I was eating this vegetable dish, and I said, this is incredibly delicious. I said, why is this so tasty? Is it the fact that you prepared it sous vide, or is there some kind of technique I'm not aware of? And she laughed and said, no, Graham, the answer is... Whenever anybody asks the question, why does this taste so good? The answer is always the same, saturated fat. So that, that was her answer. And I can say your pork is beautifully marbled and so delicious. So I know that's one aspect to it, but please tell us about the pork and why it tastes so good. Yeah, I, I just, and we talked about this before, I'm a big believer in heritage breeds. And I think that the best predictor of the past, of the future is the past. And, and for hundreds and thousands of years, these breeds were developed to live as, alongside farmers and to feed them nutritious nutritious food. 
food and they got it right. Why mess with it? The Berkshires, the oldest breed of pig in England, are a stunning example of how important fat is. And the minute you started asking that question, in my head was just fat, it's fat, it's fat. And fat was vilified, all to sort of support the corn oil industry because they needed to do something with, you know, this leftover remnants of the of corn. And and fat in particular, lard, is so healthy, so nutrient dense. The BBC did a analysis of the top 100 nutrient-dense raw foods. I saw this list. And I pointed this out to my wife. <laughs> yes. Do you remember where lard was? I, well, I remember pork fat ranking. It was either number eight or number 10. It was super yeah. high up. Yes, it's number eight. And 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 it was so wonderful to see that because, you know, I'm my... What's fascinating also is that my culture, my how I was raised was Jewish. I'm a Jewish pig farmer. And uh, schmaltz is, you know, a big part. It wasn't, of course, pork fat, but from the U- our family's from the Ukraine, and schmaltz is a big part of it. And what is that? But lard or beef fat or whatever it is, just spread on bread. Mm-hmm. And we've forgotten how absolutely nutritious and healthy this is. But never mind that. The pig is an animal that has the highest percentage of usable edible product out of most all livestock. I think it's like 70, I think it's FSR is the term and it's, I think they're about 70%. So not only is it the lard, you get all the meat, you get the bones for bone broth, which is super nutrient dense. You can use the jowls, you can use the hair. Like we said, they used boar hair bristles, right? The skin for leather, the, the feet are used for soup. I mean, everything. But I think the reason why pork is so delicious is because it's a perfect balance of fat and meat. And every cut is different. And you can you can order a whole pig and have roasts and steaks and chops and ground and sausage and bacon and lard and bone broth and you can have so many different things out of one animal that it's it it people don't get tired of it. And I'm glad people are rediscovering pork and heritage breed pork the way it should be. If you were to pick a favorite meal, let's stick with let's stick with Berkshire pork. What would it be these days? What would you cook? Okay, so I have to be honest with you and I think this is what's going to be really interesting. I don't I have a hard time eating my own pork, which is a, I've only sh- shared that with a few people. I'm very close to them and I'm I'm so close to them that when it's time to eat the meat that I raise and I'll eat my chicken, I'll eat my lamb, I'll eat turkey, all of that. But there's something about my pigs that I have a physiological reaction and I can't actually eat my own pork. So, so I have to be honest with okay, you and tell okay. you that and and it's it's been fascinating for me because I have I've never experienced pride, such a sense of pride as when people tell me they love the pork. So they'll eat it. They're like, oh my God, it's the best pork I've ever had. It's so red and juicy. And mar- and I get such a sense of pride because I raised them the way I wanted to raise them, which is free range together. They're not separated. They're not weaned. They live their whole lives in their family unit until that one last moment. And so I'm very proud of what I do, but I physiologically <laughs> can't eat my own pork. Okay. I've tried. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm too close. I'm too, too close, close to them. Too cl- so, okay. 
Well, let's go. Co- I'll come back to the meal yeah. question, but you've raised another very good point, which is the processing of animals. Yes. And I remember explaining to somebody who didn't know that processing is the other word for killing. Killing, yeah. Yeah. But I know that you do that as humanely, ethically as possible. So maybe tell us about that process and, and who comes and, and uh, tell us about the process. Yeah, meet your meat. I would I would love to have people included in it more because I think it it is so important to see the full cycle of life and we've been removed from that and I think that it, it doesn't uh, do us any justice. I think food waste is a huge problem. And I don't think we would waste as much food if we knew how it was raised. For my pigs, I have an amazing butcher. His name is Tom Gilchrist. He's been the farm butcher on the coast for 40 years. The reason I use him is he is an instant kill. He is an instant shot. I've always said to myself, I will only do it as long as there's no suffering. If I hear one peep out of those pigs, I'm not doing it anymore. Because I'm an animal lover and I, I cannot stand suffering. So as long as it's silent, I will keep doing it. If I hear anything, I'm not doing it anymore. It's done. I'll just have a lot of pets. So, <laughs> so Very large pets. Very large pets. So Tom, um, because of his experience, he is an instant one-shot wonder. And what we do is... so. I have an abattoir on site. I will not transport animals anywhere. I think that's inhumane and cruel. And so the animals, what happens is in the morning, I will separate the ones. Like today we processed three pigs, which means we killed three pigs. And we, I brought them out into a separate area up there next to the abattoir. And I gave them a little bit of food just to like keep them happy. And they have their water there, you know. And then one at a time, they're brought into the abattoir with some really yummy food. So in this case, we'll use like a goat feed that's got uh, molasses in it and oats and things that they really like. And they'll be busy eating because pigs love food. They get just immersed in it and their head is down at the perfect angle. And he has a 22 mag shotgun and he shoots them in the head in a, it's a triangle above the eyes. So if you draw a triangle above the eyes, it's sort of above the eyes and in the center of the head. And pigs are very hard to do. You have to know what you're doing. And it's instant. They're down. Then once they've been shot in the head, they have to have their so they've been rendered uh, insensible at that point. So they're no longer feeling anything, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have to cut the throat right away. If you don't cut the throat and allow the animal to bleed out right away, then the blood pools in the muscles and it's not good. That's why if people say, oh, an animal died, can I still eat it? No, it has to be done properly and you have to ha- the animal has to be bled right away. So then he cuts the throat, it bleeds out. But remember, it's rendered insensible. It's no longer feeling anything. And then it gets hung up. And it's hung up by its back legs. And then he cuts down the belly and peels off the skin. And then, or sorry, I don't, there's an order to this that probably I'm not an expert on. Anyways, he disembowels. And that's very careful because you can't have the bald duck cut. And you, you know, so there's a whole way. It's an art. It's a science. It is an underrated uh, skill. I wish more people were learning it because we need the skill to to last uh, into our future. And there's not a lot of young people doing this. So he does that. And then he's very quick. He'll uh, dress out a pig into a hanging weight in probably 30, 40 minutes. And then they go into the cooler. 
it all has to be done in under two hours for whoever we're doing that day. That's why we only do two or three a day. I also only do two or three because I don't like the mama having all her babies go at once. I think we do a two, 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 and then they're slowly gone. And then it's not a big impact on her. On the family. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is heavy to hear. But as a yeah. meat eater, it's, boy, the least I can do is understand at least what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's important is to, a lot of people don't understand how, what it takes to produce meat. I get a lot of questions about, oh, can I pick up some bacon or can I pick up a roast or you know, people have their favorite cuts. And this is why I love chefs so much because you know about uh, nose to tail eating. And when people ask me for, oh, I just want to come and pick up bacon. I say, well, okay, the mama's pregnant. You know, it's going to be four months in uterus, four month gestation. Then after they're born, it's seven months to raise them to butcher weight. Then when they're butchered, we butcher, we have a whole pig bacon's only the belly you know there's a whole other there's another 200 pounds of meat there that so i try and break it down it you know get 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 our minds out of this factory model of just press a button and bacon comes out we need to understand we've got to eat the whole animal don't just eat bacon because where does the rest of the pig go or you know if you have if you only eat white meat where's the rest of the the chicken right so explore nose to tail eating use the whole animal as much as possible and also understand the time it takes it takes three years to raise a steak right nine and a half months in utero two years on the ground it takes a year to raise a pork chop it just takes time. Let's come to the chickens now, Raquel, because I've had several of your chickens, and they are delicious. They're also different from other chickens I've had in great ways, and in one, to me, surprising way, although it shouldn't have been uh, now that I think about it. So the surprising way was breaking these things down. These are strong chickens. They are so different from a store-bought chicken in that their legs are super big and powerful. They have smaller breasts. Taking, I was uh, going to spatchcock one. I'm trying to take the backbone out and I thought, I'm going to need new kitchen shears here. The bones are so strong. So it was just an entirely different experience. And then the flavor is just spectacular. So A, some questions here. A, one, please tell us about your chickens. And two, since you do eat the chickens, maybe that could be a meal that you describe for us, a, a favorite meal with one of your chickens. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see what a healthy chicken is like. And I've had a lot of people talk to me about, you know, when they've broken down their chickens, they see broken bones and and they know that didn't happen by them. That happened when the chicken was alive. Most people are used to the Cornish hen, and that is a white meat bird that achieves about six seven pounds in weight in about two months they get so big so fast they can't walk and if they do walk they break their legs and they're so unhealthy and they're raised in these massive barns and they're just fed you know soy and so a lot of people are mistake you know soft meat for you know kind of a, a healthy meat and that's not the way it's supposed to be um, meat is muscle <laughs> yeah exactly and so uh, i raise a few different heritage breed meat birds i have breasts the canadian breasts uh, which is based on a french uh, cordon bleu uh, meat bird i also just got some 
Cuckoo de Malines, which is another French meat bird, and then Mistral Gris. And these are a lovely chicken that takes three months to get to about five pounds. Uh, It's way different than a layer, but they can still walk and run and roost and they can still have a life that a chicken's supposed to have. And the flavor is because they're heritage breed and the strength of their bones is also because they're allowed to move around and free range and Mm -hmm. do what they need to do. Yeah. So for me, I mean, chicken is just ubiquitous. It's one of those meats you can do anything with. And I, I think grilling is fabulous and I'm a big lover of Indian food as well so I tend to do like grilled chicken with butter you know butter chicken with rice and Mm -hmm. things like that so I'm a lover of one pot cooking as well I wish you know in Vancouver I used to cook a lot more and I don't have a lot of time to cook now which is unfortunate but I think the thing I use most is eggs but the other thing, meat-wise, that I eat most is the chicken. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then the stock and, you know, right. there's so much yes, you can do with so it. so much you can do. Yeah. Yes, as we were talking, nose-to-tail eating. Yes, can- nose-to-tail eating. Approach the bench. It's time for Sidebar on Chef Demoni. Tanya, thank you first for the great idea for Sidebar, bringing some fun discussions on wine generally and on wine and food pairings here to Chef Timoni. And second, for joining me here today for our inaugural Sidebar episode. Thank you for returning to Chef Timoni. Thanks so much for inviting me back, Graham. I'm so delighted to be here. Food and wine are meant to dance together, so I'm really looking forward to our Sidebar chats. As am I. And and as you know, today's episode, it's all about farming. And in particular, it's about farming on the beautiful sunshine coast of British Columbia, a place that I'm lucky to call home now. And, you know, I don't regularly think of winemakers as farmers, but of course I should because grapes really are an agricultural product. And and so I'm curious, what have you observed in your, your wine explorations about farming practices in the world of wine? Great question. Wine is all about farming. Great growers are farmers and winemakers are either great growers or they rely on great growers. This is true around the world, whether we're talking about vignerons in France, vintners in Australia, or winemakers here in British Columbia. You'll often hear wine producers, if you're touring around or you meet them, say it all starts in the vineyard. You cannot make great wine without good farming or great farming. And there are so many components to this. There are the soils, there's the water table, there are nutrients to consider, weather patterns, pests, the times of day when the sun hits the vineyard and when it doesn't, when there's shade, it goes on. But ultimately, unlike any kind of farming, it's mother nature that really does the driving here. In the context of wine growing, there's increasing discussion about sustainable farming practices, biodynamic approaches, being organic, and being stewards of the land. We're not here just to take, but also to give back to the earth. I hear this time and time again from wine growers, grape growers, and winemakers. Now, we could do a whole hour on this, but just to give you a few examples, this can involve things like hearing about crop rotation. You'll see more and more people get sheep to graze through their vines. Organic treatments being applied to the soils, the vines, to enrich things, or maybe to deal with pests. It also includes things like choosing the right grape variety selection that's going to work well with the land, not leach the land. And of course, dry farming, meaning not using irrigation. 
So, you know, these kinds of practices have been going on for centuries in the, you know, what we call the old world, but, you know, they're being embraced globally now. Part of this, I think, is increased attention on the effects of climate change and sustainability. But I think it's also coming up from this idea of um, increased what we'll call conscious consumerism. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems to be one of these topics that we're hearing about more and more, about uh, sustainable, about uh, regenerative, about giving back to the land. And it's really, and and um, I think of wine people, wine experts like yourself that I talk to, I just noticed that there's more commentary on what the people are doing actually out in the fields, uh, in addition to what's going on in the glass. So I think that's really interesting to observe that evolution. But turning specifically to some food matches for today, and I'm, I'm thinking of Raquel's thoughts on food that, uh, that you and I have both listened to. I'd love to hear from you, Tanya, on some good pairings to go with the chicken dishes that Raquel described. So whether that's grilled chicken, butter chicken, what should we be sipping alongside these sorts of dishes? <laughs> Man, that's another hour. Um, basically, I'll drink anything with chicken. Um, but <laughs> let's let's narrow that down. Bubbles, white, rosé, reds from any region or many regions are going to work here. So that's not very helpful. So let's narrow it down again. What grows together goes together. And by that, I mean, for this, let's sip local. I'm not just talking about BC here at the moment for this sidebar, but more specifically, our Wine Islands region. By this, I mean Vancouver Island and some of the southern Gulf Islands around us in the Salish Sea. You can probably see this terroir from the Sunshine Coast. It's pretty close to the farm. Yes, yes, love that. Uh, We're making some really great coastal maritime wines here in BC on the coast. They're hitting the radar with Psalms on the mainland. You might see these wines at places like Annalena, Shambar, Baobay, Labattoir, the list goes on. That's just in uh, downtown Vancouver. The Wine Islands region is so completely different from a region like the Okanagan Valley. The differences in geological history, the types of grapes that grow and thrive for wine production there, it's totally different. So for today's sidebar, I'm proposing we use the sip within 100 or 200 kilometer radius approach we talk about for what we do for buying food and eating locally. So on to the actual wine. I'm going to try and answer your question, not be such a lawyer. Um, (laughs) The the lawyerly influenced answer is great in my view. You can't take the lawyer out of the lawyer no matter how much wine she might drink. (laughs) All right. So white. Let's start with white. I'm going to chat about white and red. White. Ortega. I don't know if you've ever had Ortega. I love this grape. Ortega is a grape that was essentially created in the 1940s by a German oenologist, and it's a cross of Müller-Thurgau and Sigarebe, two other grapes. It is, our coastal expressions of it anyway, are aromatic and floral, they're vibrant, they're fresh, and they have crisp acidity. So Ortega will work with grilled chicken or butter chicken, whether that butter chicken is a mild or spicy rendition. The aromatics of this wine are going to meet the aromatics of the Indian spicing, And the acidity, the fresh, crisp acidity, will help cut through any fats. Think of a BC Ortega as a Riesling swap, dry or off dry. So, you know, and as a general comment, I like to say to people, if you're ever in doubt for a food and wine pairing, go Riesling or go Pinot Gris. You're probably going to be okay. So on that, I'm just building another swap to go really local and and try something that we're doing that's really unique and really special and has done really well here on the coast. 
that's my little 101 on Ortega. Why is it thriving here, you know, in the Salish Sea? Ortega is an early ripening grape, meaning it doesn't need a really long growing season and it's resistant to mildew. So it can thrive on the coast where we have a short growing season and pretty rainy conditions. And there are a lot of coastal wineries that are making some lovely expressions of Ortega, each in their own style. And I got to say that sounds wonderful. I'm a big fan of Riesling. I think of Riesling pairing for whatever reason, probably because I had a great combination once. Uh, I think of Riesling pairing with pork really well. And and you're right, cuts through that fat and the acidity is really lovely. So and, and I've never tried Ortega, so it's now on the to try list. Fantastic. Well, we've got a number of beautiful expressions of it. And the best thing is to keep on tasting, keep tasting, keep trying and keep pairing. (laughs) I like that advice. All right. So that is the white red for the red drinkers. Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir has, in general terms, it's high acidity and low tannins. It's, It's a thin skinned grape. And a lot of tannins in wine will come from the thickness of a grape skin. So Pinot Noir, as a result, is typically very food friendly. It's pretty safe in terms of a red. I will have Pinot Noir with, again, pretty much anything. There are lots of different styles out there. We are making increasingly more and more styles of Pinot Noir on the coast to some success and great success. Getting back to pairings around red, fruitier style of Pinot Noir. And this is in general terms. If you don't get a Wine Islands wine, it could be from anywhere in the world. So around richer, fruitier style could go with the butter chicken to play with the aromatics of the food. And because Pinot Noir is low tannins, it can work with spice. It can be okay. Remember, tannins are bitter and they're dehydrating. Tannins are what we can find in things like black tea and and dark chocolate and wine. So tannins can clash with spice and accentuate the spice. So it's a little bit of a dance there. And grilled chicken? Well, in my books, any Pinot Noir is going to work. But remember, if you're using spicy marinade or a rub on the grilled chicken, then my earlier comments about curry will apply. We've got to remember when we're considering wine and food pairings that it's not just about your base ingredients. It's not just that piece of chook, as they say in Australia. It's also about the sauces and the condiments you're using because the wine is going to be affected by your experience of that wine is going to be affected by the spicing and vice versa. The wine is going to affect how you experience that food. So that's my suggestion on Pinot Noir. Uh, I mentioned earlier, it's thriving in our coastal region. It's starting, sorry, I should say it's starting to thrive. We're starting to produce more of it. It's coming on strong. And I think it's the red to watch. For the most part, big reds, we can't make those yet on the coast for different reasons. We just don't have the conditions. We don't have the long growing season and we don't have the extended heat. But changing weather patterns in our Salish Sea region things like our growing season seems to be getting longer and maybe drier means that a Pinot Noir grape can succeed and be really beautiful here. So that's one to watch. And I'll just add, because I love geography, that latitudinally speaking, if we're looking at Vancouver Island and Sunshine Coast and Gulf Islands, we're really not that far off from Champagne and Burgundy around the globe. And remember, Pinot Noir does really well there. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think of these places as far away, but you're right. Latitudinally, they're very, uh, they're, they're close in their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our conditions are similar. Can you give us, Tanya, a few examples? I love, the, I love the background and the context, but maybe some specifics I can keep an eye out for. Absolutely. So not an exhaustive list, but for Ortega, 
a couple of the ones that I've been enjoying recently are from wineries such as Kutatash. Kutatash is based on Salt Spring Island, and they use grapes from Salt Spring as well as Saanich on Vancouver Island. Blue Grouse, which is in the Cowichan Valley. Alderley, which is also in the Cowichan Valley, but in a different pocket of it. They make a beautiful blend called the Valerie, which is a blend of Ortega and Viognier, which is a Rhone varietal. Beautiful. And Sea Star Wineries, which is Pender Island. Those are just a few examples of Ortegas that I go to grab. So if you see any of those around you, I recommend you pick up one of those bottles. In terms of Pinot Noir, the ones that I'm liking right now are again from Kutatash, which I mentioned with Ortega. Rathjen Cellars, Mike Rathjen is making fantastic Pinot Noir. He started in a bunker in his Fernwood home in Victoria. and Now he has a farm. He is a farmer in Saanich Peninsula on Vancouver Island. Avril Creek, which you probably have heard of. Their Somino series. I really like their Cowichan Valley as well. Unsworth Vineyards, also in Cowichan Valley. And Blue Grouse, also Cowichan Valley. So you'll see the Cowichan Valley is, is a great little pocket for Pinot Noir. I could go on, but those would be the ones that I would grab if you, you see one in the bottle shop next time you're strolling the aisles. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for those. Now, I do note we're coming up to 4.30 here on our recording day, which brings us right smack into the midst of happy hour. So throwing out a guess here, are you? is there anything in front of you? Are, are you sipping on anything now that you can tell us about? Excellent guess. Love your powers of deduction. <laughs> uh, well, as is my way, I'm going between two wines at the moment. I have to make sure that I like the ones I'm suggesting to you here. <laughs> it's all research. It's we all have research. to revisit them, or at least that's how I what I tell myself. So, yes, right now I am sipping on an Ortega, and I'm sipping on a Pinot Noir, and they're both, in this case, from Kutatash Wines, which I mentioned before. I happen to have them in my fridge. And so I thought I'd come back to them today. As I mentioned, Kutatash is based on Salt Spring Island. It is Mira Touche and Dan Dregart are the owners and the winemakers, and they make wines from grapes grown on their home estate. It's just outside of Ganges. So if anyone is heading to Salt Spring or is on Salt Spring any in, in the near future or when we can, I recommend you drop in and say hello. Um, and they make wines from sorry, their home estate and also their vineyard in North Saanich. So I like it because it's a truly an island blend. They've got, they've got vineyards on a few different spots in the Salish Sea, and they make great wines. So that's what I'm sipping on at the moment. All right. Terrific. Well, thank you, Tanya. Thanks very much for, as I say, for uh, Sidebar as an idea, for uh, working with me to get it off the ground here, and of course, for being here on the inaugural episode. I will let you back to sipping on your what sounds like beautiful wines. I can't wait to try them. And I think now I am going to have to return to Huff Heritage Farm and to finish my chat with Raquel. So thanks, Tanya. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Graham. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you again. I'm really looking forward to our next sidebar. Take care. Cheers. What is the interaction like with the larger cooking community here on the coast? You've told us about Lone Wolf, uh, and I know them and love them and have their bread and croissants regularly. Do you sell to restaurants at all? Do you interact? How does that work? How do you fit into the yeah. food ecosystem? Here? I, I would love to sell to restaurants. It's just not economically viable. It's not feasible for most restaurants. Their price point that they need to buy at, I 
it would I would be supplementing. I'm already supplementing other people's food bills as it is. And so it's funny. I've had people say, oh, do you sell wholesale? And I said, no, I sell I sell out instantly and I, I sell out and I'm probably one of the higher priced meat producers in B.C., and that's mainly because we also pay the highest prices for hay and feed here on the Sunshine Coast. So we are, I think, the highest priced for for hay and feed. And therefore, you'll find the Sunshine Coast products are probably higher than most. But uh, I would love to be to have this beautiful pork and the chicken and the turkey and my lamb be showcased in restaurants but they would it would have to be a special event. I also because I'm not a factory model, I can't do consistent supply. Of course. Yeah. I have, you know, like I said it takes almost a year to raise pigs and and meat birds. If I had, you know, hundreds of meat birds here, my it would put out the balance of my farm. So I do 30 at a time. I do, you know, small batches. I'm I'm very small batch. So I can't supply anything that needs something more consistent. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, tell us about, unless it's a secret, but maybe give us a hint about, because you mentioned an event or at least the idea of an event. And yes. I love this idea of community. One of the ideas that I explore on the podcast is that food is not so much about food it's not only about food at least it's about people it's about community absolutely so, so how might that work with with new neighbors potentially <laughs> yes absolutely i mean I'm, I'm so fortunate that the community in area e this farm is a big part of their day-to-day life there are people that walk by and have relationships with my animals because they see them all the time they come there's I feel, especially my egg customers that come with their kids and it's one of their highlights to come and pick up eggs. And so I feel like that's um, one thing I do well is is connect to families. And it's a direct line, a direct food chain, me to their table. And so what uh, we want to do in the fall and uh, one of the other roles I have is of the as a president of the Sunshine Coast Farmers Institute. We want to put on a farm to table event, harvest event in the fall in the field next door, and just have a beautiful dinner that showcases the lovely food and the nutritious food we we raise here. And um, we're hoping to do that every year. That this will be the first one coming up, and then we'll have one every fall after that. So just a beautiful long table dinner, yeah, with local chefs, and you know, and this is I think farmers and chefs we have such a great relationship, and I feel such an affinity with chefs because you guys get good food, you know what quality food is, and more and more people are as well. But chefs really understand. Understand it, and I think so many chefs know the 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 secret to to really wonderful, delicious cooking is source the absolute best ingredients you can and then don't get in the way too much. So it's it's a naturally symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, what, that's what's so exciting about what I do is when I see, you know, I just am the first stage. You know, I, I do a really good raw product, but to see what you do with it and how you create a dish out of it and, and to see it become so much more. I mean, you just add, that's why I love salt, fat, acid, heat. You know, you just add heat to it and look what you've done. I mean, it's incredible with the seasoning and the cooking. Oh, it's, it gives me such a joy. I can't even tell you. 
Well, listen, Raquel, the sun is sinking behind your gorgeous trees. Yeah. So I will say thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for hosting me at your gorgeous farm and i look forward to returning the next time i need to have some chickens to pick up <laughs> yes absolutely I, they're they're actually we picked them up from abbotsford the other day they're chicks right now the next batch is next being batch raised in the barn but thank you graham i'm really grateful and thank you for coming What a beautiful way to spend a spring afternoon. Thanks again, Raquel, for welcoming me to your farm and for showing me around. Thanks to Tanya as well for joining me for the first ever sidebar. It will not be our last. And thank you for being here as well. Please do feel free to get in touch with me directly. If you've got a comment or a question for the show, maybe you've got a guest suggestion or a topic idea, please do just get in touch. You can find me on social media. I am at Cheftimony on Instagram. Twitter and Facebook. On LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Graham McLennan, and you can always send me an email. Those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for this week. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I'm Graham McLennan, and I will see you again two Fridays from now, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>